story of the lost son. Um, we're going to be looking at this as the story of the older brother today. So Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. And as you are arriving there in your scripture, um, let me invite you, if you would, to join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for uh, each and every individual whom you have gathered here today. Thank you for the stories that are being told through each of these lives. Thank you for the relationships that we represent and that we have. Thank you for the, the opportunities to know you and to love you and to serve you. Lord, I pray that as we come together, uh, we would not just be individuals, but that we would also be a community, a family, a body drawn together, knit together by your spirit, that we would uh, function together in ways that allow us to have a greater awareness of not only who we are, but who you are. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, submit ourselves to your word today, that you would deepen that sense of connection to you and to one another, that sense of being called to love more profoundly, uh, to walk more humbly, to serve more completely. Lord, do that work in us today, so that not just this hour, but every hour of our week is a, week, is a, is a moment of worship uh, before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning at uh, verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want to uh, get my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed up all of his belongings and took a trip to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money on wild living. About this, the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. Uh, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. The boy became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Uh, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. So he returned home to his father and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming and filled with love. His father, in compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you, uh, both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him and get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Uh, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the calf we were fattening and has prepared a great feast. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother 
was angry. He wouldn't go in. His brother, his father came out and begged him, but he replied, all of these years I've worked hard for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all of that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you and I are very close, and everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So we have been working our way through a series of uh, messages, uh, thinking together about uh, this, this idea of walking a little bit on the dark side, uh, the darker side of our human experience, the darker side of uh, what it means to live in this world, some of the things that we struggle with, some of the things that we uh, feel guilt about, some of the things that we would prefer to hide about who we are. And so we've been saying this is a series about um, exploring and learning to tell our stories about some of these darker side experiences that we all share together. And so uh, we started and we talked a little bit about the, uh, the experience of shame and the way that shame uh, gets into our life and it causes us to move towards isolation. Uh, the Telling our story about shame is a challenge because we uh, when we are in shame, the last thing that we want to do is talk about it. Uh, we talked about shame. Uh, we've talked about perfectionism, which is a, a close cousin of shame. Uh, and this week, we are going to talk about uh, the idea of judgmentalism. Now, uh, judgmentalism is not just a Christian problem. Uh, judgmentalism is not just a religious problem. Uh, judgmentalism is a human problem. Uh, it is a part of the human condition. Uh, judgmentalism can show up wherever someone elevates their opinion, their preference, or their tradition and treats it as truth. Uh, judgmentalism shows up whenever, ele whenever somebody elevates their opinion, their preference, or their tradition and treats it as truth. Uh, judgmentalism can happen whenever somebody believes that they and they alone have the high moral ground and they look down their noses at everybody else. Uh, judgmentalism can be found uh, wherever there is a critical spirit. Uh, wherever there is a critical spirit uh, where somebody is always prone to finding fault, always prone to finding something wrong with somebody. And judgmentalism shows up uh, all across our society. Uh, if you think about the political and cultural divisions that we experience in our, in our nation today, uh, there is a spirit of judgmentalism that comes in uh, to that experience. You can find yourself being judged, and you can judge others for uh, what political party uh, one belongs to, what car you drive, what house you live in, what career you have. Uh, there's almost no limit to the ways and the places that this judgmental spirit can come in. You can even find yourself being judged for being judgmental and critical. Uh, it isn't just a Christian problem. It's a human problem. And 
it's a Christian problem. So we live in a, in a, in a world where uh, judgmentalism cuts across all uh, sectors and all spheres and all people and all groups. Everybody has a propensity towards some judgmentalism. And even in that experience, even when judgmentalism is the air that we breathe, even then, people in poll after poll and study after study and conversation after conversation will say, and even in the midst of all of that, among the most judgmental people are the Christians. Among the most uh, condescending people are the Christians that we know. Among the most um, uh, critical people that we know are those uh, people that go to church. And those Christians are mostly defined by the things that they're against. And what's worse is that this, the true nature of this criticizing, this judgmental spirit, is often hidden um, behind the guise of we're defending the truth. Uh, we are uh, standing up for purity. Or we're, uh, we have a concern for righteousness. So maybe you say, well, what's the big deal? Everybody's a little bit judgmental from time to time. Um, what does it hurt if I want to put on my judgy pants uh, occasionally? It's okay. Uh, what, what, do we, um, what do we really lose after all? Uh, and I want, I want to suggest quickly just five things that we lose uh, when we uh, slip into judgmentalism. Uh, the first thing that goes, the first thing that we lose is the ability to love. Um, it's uh, the presence of judgment almost always guarantees the absence of love. Uh, think about it through the lens of your marriage or think about it through a friend, the lens of a friendship or somebody that you work with. Uh, it's virtually impossible to love somebody and judge them at the same time. It's virtually impossible to do that. But, but you, know, you say, well, wait a minute. If they're making a terrible mistake, if, if their life is going in the wrong direction, it's loving for me to judge them. It's loving for me to, uh, to correct them. And, and this, is what, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, look, stop. And first of all, take a good, long, hard look at your own mistakes. Take a good, long, hard look at the sin in your life, the depth of sin in your life, the log that lives in your eye. And when you do that, then you'll encounter a God who has been gracious with you, a God who has been merciful with you, a God who has treated you with love, and then forgiven you in spite of your brokenness. And once you have experienced that love from God, then you can begin to love others. Simple rule. If I am judging somebody, I'm not loving them. Uh, you can't judge someone and love them at the same time. Second thing that goes. Love goes away. The second thing that goes away is helping. Uh, have you ever noticed that the people who judge the most help the least? Have you ever noticed that, uh, on the other hand, those people who are most engaged with helping are the least likely to judge? There's an inverse relationship there. And that's because judgment creates a line. It creates a line between me and you, between us and them. And the line is labeled something like better than or smarter than or more righteous than, more worthy than the person who needs help. Help, on the other hand, doesn't have that kind of a line. It just knows how to help. 
God's purpose for you and for me stepping into the life of another person in this world is not to judge them, but to help them. If you're trying to help, if you're trying to serve, you're going to notice that something disappears. You're going to notice that any sense of judgment that you once carried begins to vanish. So we lose our capacity to love. We lose our capacity to help. Uh, We also lose humility. Uh, When we're in judgment, uh, we need to know that judgment is never grounded in humility. Uh, We never come to somebody and say, oh my goodness, I'm such a mess. Uh, We're in this together. Uh, how How do we help each other? Judgment is grounded in arrogance. That's because a judgmental person almost always cares, carries with them a sense of condescension. I would never get myself into that position. I, I'm much more disciplined. I'm much more capable. I'm much more thoughtful. I plan a lot better. I'm much more moral. I have much um, uh, you know, better control of my life. Uh, we would never be in the position that you're in. We carry a, a sense of condescension or a sense of pity. Oh, poor you. Oh, stupid you. How did you ever do that? Judgment always says, I'm better than you. I've got it together more than you. I'm superior to you. Very, 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 very few people get judged into a life change. But many, many, many people get loved into a life change. We lose the capacity to love. We lose the capacity to help. We lose the capacity for humility. We lose the capacity to pray. When we have a judgmental spirit, uh, we need to know there's a connection between judgment and prayer. Judging someone and praying for someone uh, are almost mutually exclusive activities. You can't pray for someone that you judge because you're not for them. You can't pray for somebody that you judge because you're really not for them. You can pray about them, but you can't pray for them. Uh, You can't pray for them because your prayer won't be grounded in humility. It might be grounded in anger or annoyance or superiority, but it won't be grounded in love. You can never truly pray for somebody that you judge. And conversely, if you want to stop judging somebody, begin praying for them. Uh, The fifth thing that we lose, we lose love, help, humility, and prayer. The fifth thing that we lose is evangelism. We lose the ability to share good news with somebody. We we find that um, most of us run from judgment. Most people run away from people who are judging them. And we run towards people who are loving them. Uh, Who do you run from? And who do you run towards? Um, When grace and truth are fused together, people move towards it because there's a combination of truth and grace that describes the reality that we're facing and offers a hope that things can be better. People are drawn to that. People move towards that. Like to consider the possibility that God never asked you to judge the world, but he did ask you to love the world. Judgment is a terrible evangelism strategy. So we lose a ton to the judgmentalism that we harbor in our spirits. We lose a ton. We could talk about all kinds of other things that go out the back door when 
judgmentalism comes in the front door. But the question that we want to ask and answer really is, um, how do we get rid of it then? If judgmental is so costly, it's so damaging, how do we get rid of it? How do we get rid of judgmentalism? And here's here's the secret. The thing that we need to know is that I don't get rid of judgmentalism by direct effort. I can't just say, I'm just going to knuckle down and I'm going to try to be less judgmental. I can't get rid of, here's why. Why? Judgmentalism, at its root, at its very heart, is I'm better, I'm stronger, I'm more capable, I can figure it out, I've done it uh, more in a more superior fashion. Judgmentalism says I can do it better. And so trying to do non-judgmentalism better only fuels the thing that's at the very core. You see that? It's like, it's like saying, I want to douse out a fire by throwing gasoline on it. I can't get rid of judgmentalism by trying to do it better. So what do I do instead? We're going to see a, a handful of things uh, that happen in this parable that Jesus tells that gives us a different approach to defeating judgmentalism in our life. And to understand... Uh, why this parable speaks to judgmentalism. We need to, we need to understand how Jesus' stories work. Uh, when Jesus is telling a story, the pieces of the story, the characters or uh, the components of the story, often stand for other things. Sometimes Jesus tells us exactly what they stand for, and other times we understand uh, the meaning behind the story by the context that the story is in. So in this story, we know that the father who is standing on the hilltop waiting for his son to come home uh, running forward, an embrace, a kiss, the gifts, the party, all of it. The Father represents God. That's Father God. That represents God's attitude, God's presence, God's spirit. Uh, we know that the prodigal son is going to represent anybody uh, who is far away from God, anybody who is distant from God, anybody who uh, experiences uh, a desire to want to come and know God. Uh, and then the older brother in the story. Uh, represents uh, really specifically the Pharisees, uh, um, uh, some of the uh, most profound antagonists that Jesus faces. The Pharisees are religious leaders in Jesus' day who are known for their judgmental spirit, their sense of arrogance, their condescension. They're the ones that try harder and get it right, and everybody else gets it wrong. So when we look at the story, uh, we're... um, hearing Jesus' perspective on what judgmentalism is, what it does, and how to get rid of it. So the first thing we want to say is to defeat judgmentalism, uh, we have to unmask the jealousy, the envy, and the anger that lies behind it. I uh, recently came across a really courageous and insightful description from an individual who is willing to tell their story about being judgmental, and this is what uh, she writes. As many of you have noticed, judgmental people come across as dismissive and angry. Having spent too many years in that camp, I can tell you why, but this needs to stay in the room. Judgmental people are secretly jealous. It's such a well-kept secret, they don't even know it. Jealousy always manifests itself as disdain and anger. It's next to impossible to see jealousy in the mirror. Judgmental people are usually jealous of the people they judge. The harsher the judgment, the more jealous they are. I judged most harshly. I judged most harshly, she says, 
the folks who are doing what I wished I could do and get away with doing. So look at this text. Look again, what does the the older brother say uh, in verse 30? The older brother in verse 30 says this, um, uh, this son of yours squandered uh, his money on prostitutes. What does he say about the the older brother? Uh, How how does he identify him? How does he define him? How does he recognize this this, uh, prodigal who's come home? The older brother doesn't say, oh, my brother is home, my brother is back, my brother came to his senses, my brother has been embraced by That's not how he identifies the prodigal. He says, uh, this son of yours um, uh, squandered his money. It's a a word of judgment, right? So you wasted the money, um, and you did it with prostitutes. That's a that's a uh, that's a, uh, a a judgmental spirit expressed, and then and there's a second layer to the judgmentalism. Not only is the the younger brother, the prodigal, in the sights, but how does he describe him? He says, "This son of yours, right? It's not my brother, uh, it's not your your son, but there's the son of yours, the son of yours, the son that you were responsible for raising, the son that you were responsible for making sure it turned out proper and upright and and had it together." He, he messed up badly. He wasted your money on prostitutes. He's ruined our name. He's ruined our reputation. Uh, this son of yours did all of that. So there's a judgment against the father as well. You're, you're a lousy father. The son of yours, you're a lousy father. Did you see how he treated you? Did you see what he did to us? You're a lousy father. Some of the most barbed judgmental statements that we ever hear are judgments about uh, how we parent our children. And he fires with both barrels. You did this wrong. But Jesus uh, unmasks the anger and the jealousy behind the statements. The statement is, wasted money on prostitutes, the son of yours, what's behind it? If you look back at verse 28, this is what Jesus says. The older brother was angry. There's anger there. And he says, the older brother says, I did all of these things for you, and I never got anything from you. I never got a party. I never got so much as a goat sandwich from you. He's jealous. Why didn't you throw me a party? Why, why didn't you celebrate me? The anger and jealousy standing behind the judgment. Um, if we're going to defeat judgmentalism in our lives, we need to be willing to unmask the possibility that there's jealousy, envy, and anger standing behind it. The second thing that we need to do to defeat judgmentalism is to consider whether the very thing that I'm passing judgment on is present in my own life. Um, I want you to notice something very, very subtle in this story. Uh, The older son is just as far away from the father as the younger son. Uh, The younger son, the prodigal, we say, right, Uh, literally, uh, says, I want my inheritance, I'm going to consider you as dead, give me my money now, and I'm out of here. He literally goes away to a distant land. The, the younger son is gone, no question about it, he's distant. But the older son is just as checked out. But listen to this, the older son does it with a smile on his face. The older son does it um, with outward compliance. The older son is nice about it. But there's a giveaway to what's happening inside. In verse 29, the original language of the text says this. It says, all of these years I've slaved for you. 
I've slaved for you. And then he says, and I've done everything that you have ordered me to do. Do you hear the resentment in that language? Uh, Do you hear the cold heart? Do you hear the distance that's present there? I've been your slave, and I followed your orders. Being with you is not a delight. Uh, uh, Pleasing you is not what pleases my heart. It is not a joy. It is not a dance. It is not a celebration. Being with you is like being in slavery. The way to begin to defeat judgmentalism in my life is to consider the possibility that the very thing I'm judging in somebody else is actually present in my own life. The third thing is to recognize that there's an unreasonable standard. There's an unreasonable standard that is present. The brother says, here's the standard. Uh, The older brother says, this is the standard. I, he says, have never refused what you have ordered me to do. I have had perfect obedience. I have a perfect attendance record. I've gotten perfect grades. I've done everything right. I have never refused anything that you've ordered me to do. I've resented it, but I've never refused it. That's the standard. And interestingly enough, the younger brother, the prodigal, actually believes the same thing for a while. Do you remember what he's doing uh, back in that uh, pigsty? He's sitting there and he's rehearsing. How do I perform? What do I say? What do I do? How do I act in such a way that I can get back into my father's good uh, graces? And so I have this speech that I'm going to give, and I have this humility that I'm going to demonstrate, and I have uh, this new posture of how I want to be uh, just a hired hand and not even call me. These are all the right things that I want to do. And, and the father has none of it. He, he doesn't even get out his whole speech. And the father doesn't respond to the speech at all, but he, he's already making plans to welcome his son back as a full-fledged son, a celebrated member of the family. There's no performance that is good enough. There is no obedience that is sufficient. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that either brother can do to either earn or lose their father's love. So instead, where is the turning point in the story? What actually causes the story to turn? Um, It's not the carefully planned speech. It's not the long journey back. The turning point in the story is actually in verse 17. In verse 17, we find the prodigal sitting there in the filth, starving, miserable. And Jesus says, there, there, the son came to his senses and realized, I'm hungry, I'm cold, and I need my father. The turning point to move back into his father's embrace was not about a performance. It wasn't about a speech. It wasn't about obedience. It was simply about recognizing the need for the father's embrace. It's the only standard. Some of us here this morning some of us may be um, distant from God. Maybe we have a smile on our face and we have an outward expression of compliance but we know that inside we're jealous, we're resentful, we're angry, we feel like slaves. 
I want you to hear this very carefully. The way back to the Father's embrace, the way out of slavery, is simply to recognize your need. Just simply to recognize your need. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. There's nothing that you can do to be good enough. It's just to recognize I'm hungry and nothing else can fill me. And so finally, to defeat this spirit of judgmentalism, I begin to change my understanding then of who God is. I begin to change my understanding of who God is um, and, and how I relate to God. Let me, let me give you a, 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 a sort of a silly little example of the kind of change that I'm talking about. Um, when I was in college, I would uh, spend a lot of money um, right, going to school, and you get books, right? And you read the books, you study the books, you memorize things in the books. Why? Because when you do that, when you read the books, you get good grades. If you get good grades, you get a degree. If you get a degree with, a good, enough, with good enough grades, you can go to, to graduate school. If you go to graduate school, then you can get a really good job. So um, why was I reading books in school? I was reading books in school for money. Right? The books were a pathway for me to get money. Now in my life, uh, that's reversed. Uh, now, instead of uh, using books to get money, now I use my money to get books. Why? Why do I get books now? Not because I want something else, but it's for the book itself. It's for the delight of the language, the stories, the ideas, the poetry, the beauty. The book itself is the thing. And I'm willing to, to sacrifice my money in order to get that thing. I want you to hear this really clearly this morning. God is willing to sacrifice everything in order to get you. God is willing to sacrifice everything. God uh, is willing to sacrifice his son. Uh, the father in the story sacrifices the fatted calf. Uh, everything is given. Everything is poured out to get a hold of you. Why? Not because God wants something from you. Not because God says, if I get you, then I'm going to get uh, more accolades. I'm going to get more obedience. I'm going to get you to worship me. I'm going to get... I'm going to get the things that I need from you. It isn't, it isn't that God says, I want you so that. I want you because. God says, I want you for you. I just want you for you. In the gospel, when we see the gospel, when we see Jesus dying on a cross, what does Jesus get out of that? He doesn't get anything out of that except for you. Jesus dies for you, for you. Why? Because he says, you're worth it. You're beautiful. You're valuable. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. When you realize that, when you realize how Jesus sees you for you and not in order to get anything from you, when you realize that Jesus says, you're beautiful, you're valuable, you're lovely, 
you're worth it, even though you're judgmental and critical and legalistic, and then you complain about other people who do those things, even though all of that is true about you, you are what I want. You are what I want. I love you. I want you. When I see that, when, I'm, when I see that Jesus sees me as infinitely beautiful and infinitely valuable, what ends up happening then is that I begin loving God for God. In other words, when I experience Jesus loving me for me, then for the first time I can begin loving God for God. For who he is in and of himself. The older brother says to the father, what does he say? He says, I've, I've had it. I've had it. I'm done. I have slaved. I have done your orders. I have carried around the weight and the burden of serving you. And I've had it. And I've done all of that. And I've never gotten what? I've never gotten the thing that I really want. I've never gotten the party. I've never gotten the good meat. I've never gotten the I've never gotten the thing that I really think will make me happy. And how does the father respond? He said, "But you've always had me. You've always had me." When I love God for God, not for because in order to when I love God for God, for his beauty, for his grace, for his majesty, for who God is, then what happens? That spirit of judgmentalism, the anger, the jealousy, the envy, it just begins to dry up. It begins to evaporate. Because you won't be a slave anymore. What would you have instead? When you see God for God, when you, when you love God for God, when you see grace for grace and beauty for beauty, uh, you become instead the most non-judgmental person in the world. Christians should be known as the, the most non-judgmental people in the world. The commentators tell us that uh, the fatted calf is a big deal. Uh, it's not just a uh, family barbecue in the backyard. Uh, a fatted calf is a huge meal. Uh, there's a lot to eat. And even in a wealthy family, if the whole household was there and all of the servants were there and all of the household staff was there, uh, there would still be way too much. And so the commentators tell us that if somebody's killing a fatted calf, it's for a really special occasion that not just the household, but the whole community would be invited to. Everybody is invited to the banquet. Everyone is there. Now, who would that include in this story? Who is there? Do you think it's possible that there's anybody who shows up at that party who has been saying to themselves, hmm, that is one lousy dad. He's a terrible father. To drive his son away like that? Don't you think that he's, he's compounded that, that, that problem? Uh, and it's awful that he would just let him let that son back in. He's an idiot for letting his son walk all over him. In the Eastern culture of Jesus' day, there'd be many, many people offended by what the father has done. 
and yet they're invited. They're welcome to the banquet table. They think it was ridiculous. They'd be judging it, but they're still invited. The older brother, he wants just a, a small gathering with his closest friends. There's an exclusivity to judgmentalism. But there's a radical, incredible, inexhaustible inclusivity about grace. Everyone is invited. When you know the Father for the Father, when you love God for God, when you see his beauty for his beauty, the judgmental spirit is replaced with the celebration of grace and restoration that everyone is invited to. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for including us. Thank you for seeing past our pettiness, our envy, our jealousy, our judgmentalism, for seeing past our resentments, and for loving us for who we are. Lord, we long to experience your embrace and your kiss. We want to be at the party that you're throwing. Lord, give us a spirit of grace and beauty and inclusion. Teach us to love. Teach us to help. Teach us humility. Teach us to pray. And teach us to share good news. For your sake. Amen.